All you food lovers around the world, you're listening to On the Menu with Anne and Peter Haig, and we're bringing you an assortment of interviews today, um, starting with um, Paul Hollywood, who's been getting quite a lot of, um, um, of ink and air. He is a longtime judge on the Great British Baking Show, and he just produced his first book in five years called, of course, Bake. Um, he's full of uh, information and advice on baking. Listen to Paul. You know, Paul Hollywood um, couldn't probably have done anything else in his life than what he has done um, because um, his name is, of course, uh, Hollywood. And secondly, uh, his father had a bake shop and was a baker, and Paul learned the ins and outs of baking from a very, very young age. Um, The Hollywood connection goes on, what I'm about to draw a parallel to, is that you were a big TV star on, um, uh, are you still, or is it not, on the greatest, the Great British Baking Show. Oh yes, I'm still yeah, I'm still judging the Great British Bake Off. We're thirteen, thirteen seasons in now, and it's getting bigger and bigger. Yeah, really. Tell me why? Why it's like everybody's favorite show. What is it that makes it better than any of the other cooking and baking shows? I don't. I don't. Do you know what? I'm not sure. I mean, I think it comes down to nostalgia. A lot of the baking okay. that we do is very nostalgic, which takes you back to when you were a kid. And it's bakes that you may have forgotten or something you'd really like to try again. And also the fact that we film in a tent, which, again, is very unusual. I mean, most people do it in their studio, but we film everything in a tent. And it's very pastel colors. It's normally in the, in the countryside in the U.K. with a stately home in the background. It's very, it's very British village fate. Um, and I think that's what it harps back to. But I think it's quite relaxing. Um, I think the music is quite relaxing. I don't think I'm particularly... I'm not a Simon Cow. Uh, I'm straight to the point, but I'm certainly not a Simon Cow. Um, but I think it's quite a relaxing program to watch, and I think people, I think people like to watch and relax. You think he's in the successor to Two Fat Ladies? <laughs> no, seriously. I'm probably about as big as both of them. <laughs> I think they were, kind of, the they, were, they were big, but they were very popular for a while. And they, they, were, were, much mourned, they, were. they were much mourned when they passed away. Yeah, yeah. I, I did meet them. I got a chance to meet them, actually, and they, I was very fond of them. I was a big, big fan of their, their programs, actually. And the same as sort of Keith Floyd as well, you know, a big fan of Keith Floyd. Um, but I think there's so many chefs that have brought out programs. And I think I think the Bake Off as a, as a, as a series, as a television program is very unusual um i think what because of the tent and because of the the competition itself it makes it quite unique and i think it's been taken on globally i think there's about 15 or 20 different countries now making their own version of the great british bake-off i mean i know people that would miss their own wedding to watch it (laughs) well i remember i was talking to um kira knightley and i was filming with her on a program in the uk and she came on and she said, I had my premiere for one of her movies. And she found out that the Bake Off final was on the same night and she wanted to cancel the premiere, her own <laughs> premiere. 
Well, it's, it's, it's certainly a phenomenal um, operation and production. Um, yeah, this book cool. is also um, – oh, I wanted to tell you, did you ever – did you notice, if you, you looked at Eddie, we interviewed the uh, – what's her name, the, the Duchess of what? From uh, oh, the, the count, the Clapton. Countess of Carnarvon. Yeah, the, we interviewed her. Did you ever see her book? I didn't, know. No, I didn't. Yeah. Yeah. She wrote a book all about all about the gardens. Ah, uh, right. Yes. Yes. And she has no recipes, the kinds of food that they ate. And we did another yeah. one of those too, didn't we, Rabbit? An, yeah, another but... one of the great houses or something. Anyhow, it's interesting. Most of them oh, we, um, we, are we did, pretty simple soup food. Yeah, we 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 did one about uh, the place that. Uh, Side Winston Churchill and somebody else. Oh, Cl- right. Cl- oh, Clifton. Clifton. It's Lady Ashton. Clifton. 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 Yeah, I, I worked there, actually. I used to work at Clifton. And I have, uh, a couple of members of my family have worked there. In fact, I was staying there three nights ago. <laughs> oh, no kidding. Well, we, really? We stayed there. Yeah, yeah we got, we got to stay place. there because of their chef. Yeah. Yes. And you were also yeah. at the Dorchester. I was at the Dorchester so, as well, yeah. I, I mean, I've been very lucky in my professional career to work in some amazing places, and I think I ended up working in Cyprus, which was a, a beautiful hotel called the Anastasia. Oh, yeah, how did you get there? I read that in your book. How did you get to Cyprus? Well, I was, I was part of the Anton Mosiman Academy in London when I was at the Dorchester, and I was getting offered jobs all over the world, and this job came up in Cyprus, and it was owned by the foreign minister of Cyprus, Mr. Alikos Michelides. And he offered me the job. I went over there to do an interview for four days. I got the job. And then what originally was going to be a year contract ended up being nearly six-year contract. So oh, wow. um, I fell in love with the island. I still go back there a lot. And I go back to the NASA at least once a year, catch up with my friends. And, you know, I, I, it's, I think it's quite the informative years. I was 28 and I came back at about 34. Okay. And I think it's quite informative, and I, I, I'll never forget Cyprus. I'm a big fan. The no, other thing I noted is you rode, was it a motorcycle cross-country in the U.S.? I did. I, I rode from New York to L.A. on a big dog uh, chopper. Um, and I was looking, it was, it was called um, Paul Hollywood Goes to Hollywood. So I ended up going back to Hollywood and uh, checking out food all the way along the way. We ended up in New Orleans and went up through Alabama, uh, Texas, New Mexico, Nevada, and California. But it was a great drive, great ride. You know, the thing that matters with your book is every place you've been, and you've traveled quite a lot, you pick up new recipes, new ways of of approaching um, both savory and sweet baking. And, yeah. um, it, and and it shows, and I, I am not a baker, and even I'll go one worse, I have no sweet tooth, but I loved your savory recipes. My husband has the <laughs> sweet tooth. He's very English. They all have sweet tooth. We have a cousin that went to dessert camp. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I yeah. think that's a great place to be. I'd like to get myself. <laughs> but um, the thing is that this book is so straightforward it makes even me think I could probably bake something. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, that's the idea, really. The book itself 
some of the more complicated recipes are broken down into stages. So if you, it's best not to look at the whole thing. Just look at the stages because each of the stages are very easy to do, and that's the point. So once you've started and you break down each recipe on the more complicated ones, you'll end up with something that really is beautiful. And I think most of the recipes are very approachable. There are many pictures. There are many um, detailed pictures about how to do certain methods. And I wanted the book to be one of those books that's well used, you know, covered in flour and batter and, and used by everybody. And I want it to be a firm favorite. I don't mind if people write little notes in the corner, you know, when they make something. I like that mm-hmm. sort of thing. It makes it very much a personal thing. No, well, I mean, I... Go ahead. Let's, let's, let's talk a little bit about some of, some of the true favorite British baking products. Like, for, for example, yeah. my, my mother used to cook Yorkshire pudding with, oh, yeah. to be had yeah. with the roast every, every Sunday with it like clockwork. Yes. And, and as, as Anne as is about to tell you, it sounds so easy to do, but it turns out it's not. It is easy. <laughs> It is easy. You know, I don't know why, but every t- Peter says that every time I make, because well, we've moved around a lot, that, that my Yorkshire pudding resembles the topography of where we're living at the moment. Like sometimes just a hilly, you know, a hilly pudding, and sometimes a, a, a big mountainous thing, sometimes flat. <laughs> I think ultimately the best for a good pudding is equal amounts of uh, all-purpose flour, the same amount of eggs, and the same amount of milk. And if you mix and seasoning to it and a little bit of mustard, you'll end up with a beautiful... The secret is then after that is to make sure that the oil in the mold that you're going to put the mixture is boiling, it's smoking hot. You then add mm-hmm. the mixture, which has been rested for two hours, and every time they'll come out beautiful. But, but the Kirsten of the uh, my mother's trick, if, assuming it was you were considered a trick, was she used last week's fat. In yeah, the yeah same, you can use that in the same pattern to produce this week's Yorkshire pudding. Yeah, yeah, you can and do then, that. Absolutely, you can do that. And then, and then she also brought, believed in standing, letting it sit. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I, I was, believe in that. Was, that. Yeah. But, but she broke all. She broke the cardinal rule. Yeah. <laughs> which, which I'm sure you know, which, because Yorkshire, Yorkshire pudding is made in a flat pan. Yeah. In every in every kitchen in Yorkshire, in every kitchen yeah. in in Lancashire, they they produce these things. That, how, how do you describe them? You mean like muffin tins? Like muffin tins. Yeah. I use I mean, the shallow ones of those, actually. You do what? I use the muffin, the shallow muffin tins. You know, the ones that rise about half an inch. I think they're perfect. Yes. <laughs> well, my mother used to make it. It was a sheet pan, and it was served in... For, for the first, shall we say, for the first 20 years of my life, it was served out, <laughs> out, of, a, out of a sheet pan... And the reason oh, wow. that it was, they always said, the reason that it was cooked that way is because Yorkshire people are really cheap. 
And they don't want. <laughs> and they, and they well, don't I'm, want I'm from the other you. side, you see. I'm a language <laughs> yeah. boy, so I'm from the other yeah. side. Yeah, but, yeah. They, but they, but you can't. The reason that you're serving Yorkshire pudding in the first place is to make sure that your guests and your family members, for that matter, don't eat too much meat. Because the meat has to last at least until Monday, if not Monday and Tuesday. These sandwiches, yeah, yeah, I agree. (laughs) Very northern, that. Very northern. Where are you you actually from, Paul? I was actually born, uh, I'm in the northwest of the UK, so Liverpool, Wirral, um, that area. Oh, sure, sure. Well, you realise I know where that is. Oh, yeah. it's only 40 miles from where I was raised. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You, where, where, are you Manchester way? No, Huddersfield. Oh, across, Huddersfield. Oh, yeah. Across the Pennines beyond Oldham. Yeah, I know where Huddersfield is. I've been through there many times, going through Dewsbury and going across the train uh, to York. Right. Yeah, right. York's fun, I know. Yeah. No, are the, are the, are the live of a bird still there? Yes, they're still there. I don't, once they, if they leave, the whole city collapses. So they're not going anywhere. No, just, just, just in case, listeners, you won't you won't have a clue about this, and Miss Miss Anna has no clue about it either. But the liver birds, spelled liver, adorn the local insurance company. What's the, what's the right. name of the insurance? The sisters, the three sisters on the front. Yes. The Victoria. Yeah. The insurance company, the Victoria Insurance on the front. Yeah, that's true. I mean, they, they're huge. They're the size of two buses. These live right. birds that sit on the building, that, and the, the, they always say that if the birds ever left, Liverpool would collapse. There you go. There you go. Now, the, <laughs> the, the one interesting thing, this is, this is undoubtedly news to you, but I think it's kind of fun for our listeners to... Uh, to know that the reason that the Tate art galleries, which are all over England, are there, yeah. there because of the generosity of the Tate and Lyle Company. Yeah, sugar. And, and every, every, everybody, in, everybody in their whole life has a jar of black treacle and regular <laughs> golden syrup in... in in the back of their cupboard. It's, it's, it's You're going so back a nostal- few years It's there. so nostalgic. Yeah, I agree. Some of my nanny stuff. <laughs> yeah. No. You know, I, I have one question here. You've written a number of books. And, uh, yeah. This one is like the um, epiphany of, of your favorites, the classics. How did you determine which ones to include? Well, that was easy because I was very indulgent. I found the book quite indulgent for me. So I was very selfish and I picked things that I liked. And I was hoping uh-huh. that everybody else could. But to be brutally honest, they are, they are classics. And they, are, they have been around for many, many years. Um, and yes, it was indulgent on my part. But I thought they're also very popular. We, I know when we've had them on the Bake Off before, they were very popular. I'd, I'd already made notes throughout the last five years since the last book I wrote. So... It was already there. It was ready to go. And it was great fun picking the titles for the classics that I was going to choose. And I think um, from the reaction that I've seen so far, I think I chose wisely, which is great news. 
Yeah, well, you you really cover a lot of territory. <laughs> um, yeah, absolutely. Pizza and donuts yeah, and flatbreads and um, yeah, um, what pavlova? That's the one that gets me. That's another one that's oh, geographically determined <laughs> whether it works or not. Using the same recipe, it depends on where I am, whether it turns out all right or not. At one point, I served it for lunch, and uh, yeah. one of my guests said it's the only dessert she ever had to eat with a uh, fork and a, and a uh, steak knife. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think initially was, fork and then steak knife, yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, that's a humidity issue, I think. Yeah. But now, the... Um, uh, Peter asked me, um, do you have a recipe for crumpets? <laughs> and I couldn't find I any. Do, I, I do have a recipe for crumpets. I think it's in my book, How to Bake, actually, the crumpets. can't remember it off okay. the top of my head, but the secret with, um, with the crumpets, once you make the, the batter, it's quite a wet batter. And then mm-hmm. what you do is you add baking powder right at the end, and it gives it a little kick. And then it's that, it's that liquid, which is quite stringy, and you put that into a ring which you've oiled on top of a hot plate, and you pour it in to about a third to a halfway up. You then leave that for around four minutes, and you'll start to see bubbles appear onto the top. Once those bubbles set, you just flip it over and leave it for two minutes, and it'll be good to go. I love making my own crumpets. They are delicious, and they are amazing to make. Are they, out, are they around much anymore, Paul? Yeah. Crumpets are, crumpets I haven't, are I haven't, I haven't seen a crump. I haven't seen a crumpet for a long time. Whereabouts do you live now? We live in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. We there would there would not be crumpets here. No, no. If you, obviously, if you go to the UK and you walk down a supermarket shelf, you'll see them all over the place. Okay, okay all right. I was I was wondering if they were still out there as, as popular as they yeah. used to be. You might be able to order it online and get them delivered to you. <laughs> You know, I have a question. When my mother-in-law visited us for the first time, um, yeah. my my mother um, introduced her to brownies, and the way my mother-in-law reacted um, was she adored them, but it seemed to me like she didn't have brownies in the U.K. I mean, you have all these recipes in this book for brownies and and, and yeah. um the white ones. So is it known in England or is it a recent introduction or what? The, brown, the brownies are huge in, in England. There are shops which just, just sell brownies or blondies and they, they're amazing. I mean, they are a big thing in the UK and have been for many years. I and mean, I know they started over in the uh, US, but the UK have adopted them and, and sort of ran with it and put their own things in them. I mean, tray bakes have been around in the UK for centuries, you know. That idea uh-huh. of a tray bake and making some money or taking them to church in the middle of a... After church, and okay, they get together for right. a coffee meeting and you take a tray bake. That's a very normal thing. And obviously mm-hmm. brownies were around when I was growing up, which is uh, because now, because I'm, what, 32? I think ultimately uh, it comes down to, you know, brownies been around most of my life. And I do think they're delicious. I think they're very simple to make but highly effective. Yeah, you do blondies too. So yeah. and you have a, a great variety of pizzas, you know. Yes. Uh, people do atrocious things to pizzas. <laughs> oh I know, I know. Believe me, I've seen them; they're terrible. I mean, I um, I I find that I really have to fight to get 
pizzas and donuts in as a chapter because I didn't think it would go. And I, uh-huh. I only picked it out of pure, pure um, self-indulgent because they're my favourite things to eat. Pizzas and donuts. I could live off that. I wouldn't be very healthy, but I could still yeah. live off it. <laughs> so you do Danish pastries too, which are not as simple to make as, as a lot of things. But you, you seem to have fallen in love when you were doing your American tour with pecan pie. You talk about not yeah. healthy <laughs> and indulgent. There's, there's a lot of sugar in there. There's a lot of sugar in there. There's a lot of sweetness in there. And, uh, I mean, every, it's nice to treat yourself every now and again. I mean, the best yeah, well, My concern like was the that. butter, and the recipe I have was like almost a pound of butter. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, yes, exactly. The thing is, when you're making something like a pecan pie, then my advice would be, if you want to go on a diet, I, this is the way to do it, right? You can turn this into a, a proper uh, diet bait. So you make the pecan pie, and you cut the slice off that you really want, and you put it on your plate. And that may have <laughs> 300 calories in it. Then oh, what you do more. Is, Way more. <laughs> well, probably more. Depends on the size of the slice. And then all you do then is cut that in half and eat that, and you've halved your calories straight away. Now, the interesting thing is that about four or five months ago, sweetheart, we got the fruitcakes from Texas. Oh, right. <laughs> Peter ate them all. He ate the whole they were, thing. They were, they were really oh, good. lovely. I mean, they were, they, proper fruitcakes. Pro, proper, proper fruitcakes. They, 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 didn't, they didn't have marzipan on the outside. They didn't have marzipan right. and uh, icing. But, but they wow. sure were good. Well, you know, I thought I could never face that whole thing with the uh, wedding cakes being fruitcakes in the U.K. And and my opinion was cinched when we couldn't make it to to my niece's, our niece's wedding. And um, Peter's sister sent us in the mail the groom's cake. (laughs) It it came all, the, the packaging was all bruised and torn up. Oh, no. I bet you could have used it to hold the door open. It's what? It was good for I bet you could have used it to hold the door open. I didn't hear it all. He said said it was good for keeping the door open. Oh, oh, yeah, right. (laughs) Paul, what's coming next? I mean, let's look... In the future a little bit. You, this is a lot about nostalgia. Um, yeah. The, the I see traditional and classic bake stuff, bakes as the English say, um, mm. really sort of re-entrenching, becoming the, the gold standard for baking in today's world. What do you think? What, the British form of baking or the bakers the, themselves? Uh-huh. They make themselves. Oh, right, okay. Yeah, I, mean, I think it's something that's been entrenched for a long time. I think uh, I think the idea is for people to make it their own, and that, that's the critical thing. I want people to make these recipes. And if they make the recipes, master the recipes, then they can change the recipes to make it their own. Then it becomes very much a family tradition to make them. I, 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 I'm a firm believer. If you look at kids nowadays and they all play on their video games and they're all online and staring at the phones, and 
if you say to any child, do you want to do you want to play on your game or do you want to come and bake with me in the kitchen? They will all say, I want to go and bake because they enjoy baking. And I like I to think that Bake Off is made for the kids, made baking quite cool. And, it, you know, if you make something a little bit cool for the kids, they all want to get involved. And let's be honest, if you can make a, a great cake or a great loaf or a sausage roll or whatever you're going to do, you can impress anybody. Well, I, I agree with you. Uh, what's, what's your next book? <laughs> um, I don't know. My next thing is I'm going to have to come down to Pittsburgh to see you guys and have a cup of tea. Sure. We'll have to sort that out one day. You're, you're, you're certainly invited, but you have to find us first. Yeah. I won't find you. I've got a great sat now. I'm brilliant. Yeah. But we're usually in London pretty often, and we spend, uh, we've always spent um, Christmas in Cornwall with Peter's brother and his family. Oh, wow. Beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. St. Agnes, you know. But we we haven't traveled during the pandemic, so we've broken that tradition. I think we have to start it again. And I'm I'm not sure what's open and what's not open in London anymore in terms of oh, restaurants. Everything, everything, all the, all of the um, COVID restrictions are gone. So now you can go everywhere and you don't need to wear a mask. No, I meant like what? Which ones survived? Um, which restaurants actually survived? I think a lot which, of them are still there. A lot of them are still there, to be honest. I good. think a lot of them have closed down and opened it up slowly. So a lot of them are right. opening up for two days, three days a week, and then they'll build up. They just need to generate the staff, come and get the staff back again. A lot of hospitality in the UK lost staff during COVID, and they've gone off to do other things. So although the businesses are all still there, they're just lacking staff at the moment. But that's a very sad, sad yeah. thing. So there are plenty of jobs out there. So Oh, yeah. I mean, Restaurateurs are having a terrible time filling staff positions here in the country. Yeah, yeah, they are. It's a a bad thing. It's a bad situation. But over time, I think it will come back, and we need more people in hospitality. Well, you're you're now in in New York City. Where are you going to have dinner? I'm not sure at the moment. I'm meeting up with some friends that are coming over. Um, I'm doing a uh, 92nd uh, Street event tonight with the book. Um, uh-huh. So after that, I'll see what time it is, and I'll see where I'm going to go for um, for dinner. I'm sure it'll be a, an amazing restaurant. There are some fantastic restaurants. Yeah, they they didn't do. Did you see the 50 best list this year? That they had it on Monday night. The 50 no, best I didn't. They did. No, London, the, the, London, the UK did not do well, uh, nor did the USA. Um, yeah. They had some really peculiar restaurants on it, but they always have peculiar restaurants on it. So, but um, yeah, but that used to be a fun event, anyhow. Yeah. Well, I yeah. hope you enjoy your stay fun. here, and, uh, I, I, and I, I hope, totally. yeah, I hope we get to, to meet at some point. And absolutely, keep up. I'd love to meet you guys. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Thank you very much for bringing me on. It's much appreciated. Oh, I just loved it. I mean, I. Peter loves your recipes, and maybe I can teach him to bake because I'm I'm really yeah, not very to. yeah. So okay, yeah, well thank you for talking to us. My pleasure. Pardon? Thank you very much indeed. Thank, thank you very you. much for allowing me on. Thank you. Uh-huh. Bye bye.
Bye bye. We're going to be talking to Adam Cohen from Snacks Sensational. That gives you some idea of what's in this interview. Um, and talking particularly about his two brands, Cookie Pop and Candy Pop, uh, as well as his uh, pasta tubes, penny straws is what it's called. Um, let's listen to Adam. Yes, Laura Sorkin of Runamock is practically a regular on the menu. Welcome back, Laura. Um, Thank you. Um, you never stand still. I mean, you're always doing something new. <laughs> for, for for listeners who haven't heard your previous uh, discussions about the the uh, company Runamock, um, could you just give us a brief description of like how old it is and and what what where it is and uh, what it's concentrating on doing? Absolutely. Uh, so we started producing maple syrup in 2009. We're up in northwestern Vermont. Uh, we're about 30 miles from the Canadian border, so we're pretty far north. Uh, and for the first several years, we just sold on the bulk market. Um, and we did, we did quite well with that and, and grew the company. And we were up to roughly 86,000 taps on our property and decided to uh, start a retail line. Um, but given there's an awful lot of maple syrup in our region, we thought we might try and distinguish ourselves a little bit. So we we steered in the direction of infused, barrel-aged, smoked, um, just some more unusual types of maple syrup. And we also focused quite a bit more on the packaging. Uh, you know, traditional packaging for maple syrup is, is uh, sort of the putty brown <laughs> plastic bottle. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> and we just thought we'd make it look a little bit more uh, gift-worthy. You know, maple uh-huh. syrup is actually pretty expensive stuff, and so we we thought we might get a little bit more into the gift market. So we launched in 2016 and got our start at the Fancy Food Show down in New York City, and we're very fortunate in that our, our booth was, was passed by Oprah's people. So the very first year that we launched our line, uh, we made it onto Oprah's list of favorite things, which was a very a very nice start for us. And so- uh, one one thing I remember from our last interview is you said there's real meaning for the title of our organization because everything's <laughs> always running amok. Pretty much. If you, if you base your you want, business, you want, to, you want, to, you want to give our listeners an insight into what that means. Yeah, if you if you base your your business on how the weather goes, especially the weather in a northern climate, then you're basically asking for a wee bit of chaos in your life, and so <laughs> uh, comes from. And, and every year we are proven right. So <laughs> not, not good, right? Yeah, well, you know, the people have a very romantic uh, idea about um, uh, tapping maple trees and getting syrup and so on. It's hard, isn't it? it it's very hard work. Um, so the, the season starts in winter um, when we go up to start tapping the trees because we have so many to tap. And we now have two sugar bushes, so we've got a total of about 125,000 taps total. 
Um, when you've got that many, you need to start earlier in the season. So we, we started in January, and there's often two, three feet of snow up there, and the equipment is about 20 pounds on your back. And, you know, there's just no <laughs> way you need to walk um, from tree to tree. It's not like there's nice, easily, you know, laid out, plowed roads for everything. You know, they'll take the the equipment or the, the vehicles up the main roads, but then it's it's all walking. So our, our crew that does this are some of the fittest people you'll ever meet. They're out, <laughs> they're out in the weather. I mean, it's, you know, that's a job. It's, it's being out in, in, in the winter and the cold. And, um, you know, as the season goes on, they generally have to switch into snowshoes in order to stay on top of the snow. And mm-hmm. uh, so then uh, in spring, or rather when, when the temperature is above freezing during the day and below freezing at night is when the sap starts to run. And that can be any time from late February. Uh, some years it doesn't start until April. Uh, it's, it's different every year. Traditionally, the main month has been March uh, for, the, for the season of sugaring, and, and we find that that's, on average that's still true, but, but uh, every year is different. Capture this one, Laura. You woke up one morning and you turned to the person with whom you share your night and you said, let's plant 120 sugar maple trees. (laughs) Is that that like how it it happened? Or or is there Uh, something more rational about it? There's absolutely nothing rational about uh, producing maple syrup. It's, it's uh, like I said, it's sort of based on the weather, and it's based on just about the worst weather, but it's the tradition that's been going in this region for over 200 years, um, well before that, actually. So, you know, we aren't the first crazy people to do this. It, it, uh, and actually, the other thing you have to remember is that you're, when you're in the sugar maple business, you're dealing with a product which is oh so wonderfully tasty and oh so wonderfully you can't put it down once you once you open a jar or once you open a, some other container you have to finish and and so you know what when with the barrel aging and the infusing and stuff we found that maple syrup is remarkably complementary to a lot of different um, herbs and spices and uh, spirits and so, you know, that some had been done before, like cinnamon vanilla infused is, is a classic and it's absolutely delicious. But we thought we might get into the spice rack and sort of see what else might be, be good. And so we tried cardamom and hibiscus and all sorts of different things and have you found cinnamon in that. There, right? I'm sorry? You, you have cinnamon in there too, right? Yeah, we've got a cinnamon vanilla that's still one of our best sellers. Um, but, you know, ginger infused is phenomenal. Uh, cardamom is one of my favorites for both savory and for, for sweet dishes. And then the barrel aging is when we take the maple syrup and um, we put it in a recently emptied barrel of either bourbon, rum, or whiskey and let it sit there and age for about nine months. And it absorbs, like, the, the essence of the whiskey and it picks up some of the oak from the wood and it just it results in this absolutely phenomenal product. Now you also you've also got a connection with the honey business. Yes. Tell, tell so us more that, about how that works. We went into honey uh, during the last year, and we don't keep our own hives, but we um, started meeting other family apiaries 
One of them is in upstate New York, and Eric and I actually went down to Florida this past April to meet with other suppliers for things like orange blossom honey and Tupelo honey. Um, so we've been learning quite a bit about the honey business, and it's, it, it sort of makes sense with our production line and, the, and producing maple syrup. Honey was like a, a natural next step for us, and just because we're, you know, we've got a lot of experience with infusing, we've got a couple of infused honeys, which are a lot of fun, and some, some hot honeys, some spicy ones. But I must say yeah, that that's, that's an eye-opener, spicy, the hot ones yeah. that you have. They are. Um, but the things that I've, I've really, really enjoyed with the honey is the monoflorals or the, um, the varietals. And that's, that's a honey that is produced by bees at a certain time of year when they gravitate towards one type of flower. So in the springtime, we have basswood, and basswood is a tree, um, and the bees absolutely love the flowers there. And the resulting honey, it's very light and really, it's almost like minty. It sort of has a really refreshing, light, delicious flavor to it. And then we have another one called knotweed, which is a late-season honey. It's a, it's one of the only flowers that's still um, going at the end of the summer, and it's it's, to tell the truth, it's an invasive species. It's really hard to It's do. horrible, yeah. We, they have a, an event in, in our area um, where we have a lot of knotweed um, growing to, to pull it all out and cook it. Yeah, yep. They're, they're trying to find uh, creative ways of getting rid of it. Um, in the meantime, however, it is an excellent source of food for the bees at a time of year when there's very few other things flowering. Oh, and the result okay. Right. Oh, isn't that interesting? It, it's almost like a, a buckwheat honey, but it's, it's even better. It's kind of malty and a little bit nutty. Um, very rich, nice honey. Um, and so learning about the monoflorals has just been a hoot. Like Tupelo honey is, of course, a very famous honey that comes from... Yeah an area in the southeast where the Tupelo trees grow, um, and that's a very unique honey. So, you know, it, honey is global. I mean, it's produced everywhere, and, and, and each area has its unique flavor for it. So uh, we've really, really enjoyed learning about the honey industry. When the, you introduced new products at this latest um, in June fancy food show in New York um, City, um, tell us about which products and how were they received? Were people surprised? That always interests me. Um, well, in between the honey and our, our maple syrup line, we did a, a line of cocktail mixers, and those are all maple-based. And it was actually it received very well because Ranamuk had already developed a reputation of having very high-quality uh, uh, maple syrups. And so, you know, when we came out with our, our mixers, people were willing to take a chance on us because they liked the run-amuck line to begin with. And so um, we came up with these mixers. A, a very classic cocktail is a maple old-fashioned. And so we have a, a mixer that's got all of the elements of the maple old-fashioned, obviously the maple syrup, um, a little bit of orange, a tiny bit of, of cherry, um, and it, all you do is add the, the bourbon or the, the whiskey, and it's unbelievably good and then uh, we do a smoked old-fashioned also which is a similar product with our smoked maple syrup and it's it's just oh it's the absolute best thing on like a, a crisp fall night to have a, a smoked old-fashioned 
Um, and then the two other ones are uh, maple mule, the maple, maple ginger mule that you can either add vodka to or it also works very nicely with rum. Um, and you, but those you need to add, top off with just a little bit of seltzer to make it effervescent um, the way you would with a mule. And the uh, last one, which was the most surprising for us, was a tonic, a maple-based tonic. And, you know, I, I think the gin and tonic had sort of, you know, it had gone by the wayside as sort of old <laughs> aid and not, you know, it, it, so many other trendy drinks had sort of shadowed, overshadowed the gin and tonic. I feel like we've, we've resurrected the beauty of the gin and tonic with this maple-based one because <laughs> it's got so much more going on with it. It's really, have, really have good. You, have, you, have, have, you, have you tried bitters? Yes, and we also have bitters. Um, so we have maple-based bitters, which, they, believe me, are still very bitter. They're not sweet, um, but all bitters have just a tiny bit of, of sugar in it, so it's it's maple, but it's also got all of the, the bittering agent um, that you would find in typical bitters. And we've got a, a floral, an aromatic, and an orange um, bitter. And those are also, they, they've they all been well-received. It's been a lot of fun. Wait, you, you sound to me like you've had chef training. <laughs> Have you? Uh, yes. So I went to the French Culinary Institute in New York. Um uh-huh pretty much right out of college and I worked in some restaurants in New York for a while before I, I moved on to graduate school in, in environmental management. Uh-huh. Yeah, well, <laughs> but then you returned to the, the food industry, huh? It, it's got a magnet to it, doesn't it? It's very hard to get away from the food industry. It's just, it's always dynamic, always interesting, and of course, if you love food, you know, you're just always going to come back to it. Yeah, right. re- recently, we've we've talked to two or three people who deal with what they call temperance cocktails. Ah, uh, yeah. Yep. Um, so we have a couple of collaborations going with uh, some non-alcoholic companies um, that do spirits that are non-alcoholic. I'm not exactly sure what the proper term is to use for them, so I'll just put it that way. Um, but those have been very popular. You know, there, there's dry January, but I, I think it's a it's a year-round thing now. Like, a lot of people are really interested in non-alcoholic cocktails. You know, they, they want to go to a bar. They don't want to drink alcohol, but they, they don't want to get the kitty drink either, and they don't want to order a Coca-Cola. They want something uh-huh. with some to it, and that's kind of interesting. And so uh, we have a number of collaborations that we're working on with, with spiritless um, spirits. Maybe that's what they're calling them. Yeah, a a big segment, um, if you call it a segment, uh, is the non-alcoholic cocktail hour and things like that. Yeah. uh, I I just read read that the New Orleans, that that actually um, it's kind of a a black-sponsored, um, movement in in New Orleans. Huh. that's interesting. Yeah, yeah, I thought that was well. There's so many interesting things out there. Who knows? Huh? But but um, yeah. So but they they even have they have an organization of bartenders uh, who uh, it's called the Pin Project, and they wear pins um, to. To indicate without having to say anything if they're out enjoying 
socializing but are not drinking, that they're part of this project. Yeah, you know about yeah. that too. Well, I, so. you know, I feel like I, a lot of my friends now are not drinking alcohol. Um, and so it's, you know, it's all around me. And a lot of people I'm close to, if, if they go out for dinner, they'll order a uh, seltzer with bitters as, you know, just again, don't want to, you know, you don't want the sweet soda. You want something a little more sophisticated. And so bitters, which does have a tiny bit of alcohol in it, um, but, you know, it's pretty, it's kind of like vanilla has a little bit of alcohol in it, too. It's, it's a preservative more than anything else, um, you know, that it gives uh, a, a more sophisticated flavor to have just seltzer and bitters. Well, it's it's an interesting phenomenon, and I don't know quite why, coming off of this, um, I guess it was overkill on drinking during the pandemic. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We all need to a little bit, right? Yeah. So what's next, Laura Sorkin, oh, for Run Amok? Uh, that's a good question. We Right now, we're still trying to get the word out about honeys. Um, and, you know, finding new and interesting honeys. That was part of our, our bee safari down in uh, in Florida was meeting up with new producers and trying new things. But, um, you know, like I said, it, it, honey is global, and so I, there's just no end of, of places to look and honeys to try. You know, maple syrup yeah. has a very short history, if you think about it, um, and it's extremely local, which is, which is very cool to produce a product that's so unique to, to North America um, that you can't you really can't get anywhere else. Honey, on the other hand, I mean, it's not only global, it's, it's biblical. Like, you know, it's got a history oh, yeah. that goes back um, centuries, and, and that's really fun. You know, and every culture has a different use for it, and it's, it's incorporated into their communities in different ways. And um, so, so, you know, we just scratched the surface with honey, honestly. Yeah, I mean, we've, we found that um, people involved with the honey industry are really interesting, too. They're almost oh. spiritual. <laughs> yeah, and it's, um, you know, the, the industry's in, in a lot of danger, too. I mean, it's... it's um, oh, yeah. You know, the honeybees are, are, are really struggling. Um, there's lots of habitat and pesticides. And, um, you know, when we went down to Florida, actually, because we found that that's where most of the beekeepers are in the winter. They, they can't keep their bees up north because they'll lose all of their bees. Um, mm-hmm. So they take them down to Florida, not to make honey, in fact, but just to keep them alive and to propagate them and increase the hives, which they'll go back up north and sell to other people who have lost their hives. They also go, you know, they'll travel out west to the, for, the, um, for the almond crop. Um, and so oh, it turns yeah. out that be- both beekeepers are migratory. Like, they travel where the crops are and, and where they're needed. But they kind of have to go south now for the winter if they're going to keep their bees alive. It's really difficult to do it up here. Well, what about the the heat waves that with climate change? I mean, I don't think bees like 114 degrees <laughs> temperatures anymore. Hmm? They they do not. None of us really like that, now do we? Well, oh, you're right. Well, again, wonderful talking to you, and keep up the good work. Keep us uh, posted on what you're doing with Ronamok next. 
We will. If we have a new exciting product come out, we will definitely send it your way so you can give it a try because we love to get your feedback. Thank you so much. Again, listeners, Laura Sorkin with Runamock Maple and now Maple and Honey products infused um, all around. Thanks again, uh, Laura. My pleasure. Thanks for uh, thanks for the chat. Podcasting services for On The Menu Radio are provided by ASP Station, www.aspstation.net. Welcome back. And to conclude our today's program, we're going to talk to our old buddy, Laura Sorkin, with one of our most favorite companies, Runamock Maple. Um, Laura has some new things that they're doing, and she's going to talk to us about it. Yes, we're going to be talking to Laura Sorkin from Runamock Maple, um, the the company that she founded and runs. Um, tell us how you came to do this, Laura. Obviously, you're where you can get a lot of really good maple syrup a.k.a. Vermont, right? Yes, exactly. Um, so my husband and I started sugaring our property in 2009 in Vermont. What's that recently? Uh, sugar, huh? sugar is a, a verb, an adjective, and a noun. If you, I always <laughs> sure, like to yeah. get the term straight for people. Like when you say you're sugaring, it means you're making maple syrup. Right. So um, around 2009, we started sugaring, and we we started – pretty large like right away we did about 27,000 taps on our property which is was quite big for the time um wow and right now we're up to 86,000 on our property plus an additional 20,000 on a different property so we have 100,000 taps that we uh do everything really I mean are those individual trees those are individual trees. If the tree is very you, large, you can put two taps in it, but generally speaking, it's it's one tap. Now, what did you do before? I mean, this is not something, did you wake up in the morning and say, I want to be a sugar daddy? <laughs> well, um, we moved to Vermont to start an organic vegetable farm, and we okay, did that from right. 2000 um, on, and we just found it really difficult um, to make a go of it financially. Most of our property is actually steeply sloped forest with a really good sugar bush. There's another term oh. for you. Um, yeah. So that is refers to like um, a forest that's really dense with sugar maples and red maples. Um, so a lot of our property is excellent for producing maple syrup. So we switched to maple syrup in 2009 um, and we started selling on the bulk market for uh, six years or so, which means we sold to other packers who would bottle it up and, and sell it. And around 2016, we decided to start our own retail line. But since there's so much uh, maple syrup available recently, we, we thought we might do some things to distinguish ourselves. Um, so I have a, a background in the culinary arts. I went to the French Culinary Institute in New York, which I think is now the International Culinary Institute, and some time in, in restaurants. Um, and so we, we started applying a little bit more gourmet attitude towards maple syrup and doing barrel aging and infusing. Um, we smoked it and 
found that maple syrup is really conducive to a lot of different flavors. It takes on a lot of spices and herbs just, just beautifully. Oh, um, so it does. Barrel I mean, you, had, your product sorry. is just amazing, and, and it's um, – uh, well, Peter's actually consumed most of it, and he loves it, <laughs> and uh, he has lost a bunch of weight, and so we're, we're trying to figure out ways to get him to put weight back on, and, and <laughs> lo and behold, there's the, the maple syrup <laughs> in the well, honey. Well, <laughs> then what I recommend is some whiskey barrel-aged on some butter pecan ice cream. That's a very good start. Ooh, um, ooh, ooh. Yeah. Also, okay. maple pudding is probably one of the highest callings for maple syrup, and we have a recipe uh-huh. for that on our website. Um so one of those you have a lot of recipes on your website, and you have you have um, you sent a little uh, brochure and some mm-hmm. recipe cards. And I, I mean, I'm amazed at how ingenious you are about different ways of pre- preparing and um, oh, thank you. And doing using. Um, Well, what we're trying to do is get people to think beyond pancakes um, and use maple syrup as an everyday sweetener um, the way they would for honey um, or agave or other other sweeteners that are on the market. Maple syrup is very rich in flavor, um, and there's a lot of potential for it, particularly in cocktails. We really really see a lot of potential in cocktails, and in fact, we we also have a a pre-made cocktail syrup. Um, We have a maple old-fashioned. We have a a ginger maple mule because we just find it's it's fantastic in cocktails. Um, but also for pastries and also in savory dishes. Um, not yeah, tell to us everything. about the savory. I mean, that's that's unusual, isn't it? Um, it's not as unusual it used to be. You'll find, uh, you know, the chef Yotam Otolenghi. He's he's um, a London-based chef. He oh yes, uses yeah, maple yeah. syrup quite a bit. Um, and again, like you're not trying to make everything super sweet. It's merely just you think of it as like a seasoning, um, the way you would, you know, when you put salt on things. You don't necessarily want the dish to taste. Yeah, salty. the same with lemon juice. Yeah, citrus. Yeah, yeah, you want it to accent the flavors that are there. And and my approach is the same with with maple syrup. You just use a little bit, and that sugar actually brings out the other flavors in the dish. So there's some very easy things like um, roasted vegetables. You can use it as a glaze sort of towards the end of roasting. You don't want to put it on too early. Um, a very traditional one that everybody loves in New England is to use maple syrup on um, acorn squash when you bake yes, acorn yes, squash. Yes, Yep. But then other things. And butternut that, squash, too. Oh, so good. So good. <laughs> so there's other things that, um, you know, that our products, like the smoked maple syrup, a lot of people love that on salmon. I would mix that maybe with a little bit of of Dijon mustard and use it as a glaze uh, for boiled salmon. It's very good. Um, You know, we don't have have any more of that left, and I didn't use it on salmon. (laughs) Oh, no. Well, we can send you some more. (laughs) Um, That sounds so great. Like our Macroot, which is a a Thai lime leaf. It's got the... The maple syrup is very floral tasting. It's very tropical. Like that on coconut ice cream is unbelievable. But it's also really good um, in Thai dishes. You know, in a lot of Thai dishes, they'll add palm sugar or a little bit of of a sweetener to it. And maple syrup is an excellent substitute for any Thai dish or Southeast Asian dish um, because it's got that caramel richness to it that palm sugar has as well. I think it would be much more complex and satisfying too. 
Exactly, exactly. And again, for the savory dishes, you know, we're just talking like a teaspoon or a tablespoon, depending upon what, what you're making. You know, a lot of times in, in an Asian sauce, there is that sweet element to uh, to a stir fry, and maple is, is really lovely in that. Now, well, now talk to, just just give our listeners a, a like a just a little primer on on the process of actually sugaring the tree. Yeah, actually, sure. It's, okay, it's smart. So, the trees are smart, aren't they? <laughs> so I always um, think of them as smart to be doing that. <laughs> they're, they're smarter than we are, right? Um, yeah. So the tr- we start um, tapping the trees in January because what we're trying to do is have them all tapped before the sap starts to run. And the sap will run uh, when the daytime temperatures are above freezing and the nighttime temperatures get below freezing. Now, why so does it run? Uh, it runs because of pressure that's built up in the trees, um, and it actually draws up moisture from the ground. They used to believe that, you know, the sap was just sort of sitting in the tree waiting to to come out at the right conditions. Mm-hmm. But, in fact, it's constantly drawing up water from the from the ground as it's producing sap. So when those conditions happen, uh, the trees will start to run, and you, it'll come out um, from each tap as like a drip, drip, drip. And it comes, we, we put the tap into a tube, which leads to a bigger tube, which leads to a bigger tube, and it all ends up down at the sugar house. Um, it's all in a vacuum system. And so with 86,000 taps at the same time, like when it's really running, it comes in like a fire hose. It's pretty amazing to watch. So wow. then what now how many is, people do you employ? Um, in the woods, there's about 12 to 16 people during the season, uh, but mm-hmm. we now have 85 employees total. Wow. Now let's not, um, let's, not, let's not forget about the other the other thing for which you're famous and which we also enjoy consuming in large quantity, and that's honey, 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 honey. Yeah, yeah. So that is new for us this year. Um, yeah, that's, that's what, what I thought. Been, yeah, it's been a joy to, to learn about that um, because obviously Eric and I have a background in maple syrup, um, but I do not in honey. So we have been learning from from the experts and. I call them little honey safaris that, that Eric goes on. He, um, he has been heading out meeting with beekeepers, mostly in upstate New York. Uh, there's the winter family that we, we buy a lot of our honey from, and they've been doing it for many generations and, and definitely know their stuff. Um, we also buy some from Montana. Um, it's called the High Plains Clover Honey, and some from Florida because we wanted to get that orange, um, orange growth honey. Yeah. Um, where well, the now, bees are did you learn all about the bees? And that you, you buy oh, yeah. honey, and then what do you do with it? Uh, so when we buy the honey, we do have raw honey, which is the the orange honey, the the late summer um, um, beekeepers cut one, and then um, uh, the other one is the high plains clover. Those are the raw honeys. And then we, since you know our specialty is infusing, we also have some infused honeys. So we've got. Um, a lemon verbena one, which is really nice in your tea. Um, we do some hot honeys. My favorite, I think, is the hibiscus honey because it's, oh, yeah. and all it is is just the hibiscus petals in the honey. And hibiscus has got that wonderful, like, raspberry tangy flavor to it. So yeah, it kind of like takes the edge off of the sweetness of the honey. Um, and it's really great on, like, toast or English muffins in the morning. Um, it's also nice in tea. So that, that one currently is my favorite. Now, honey, honey takes on the characteristics 
of the flower or whatever it is the bees have been feasting on, right? Exactly. And so that's what our orange blossom honey is. Those are hives that have been kept. Um, in fact, they're down there to pollinate the citrus groves. And so they've just been feasting on, on orange flowers and lemon flowers and grapefruit flowers. And, and it comes off with just this lovely, lovely orange undertone to it. And you'd think that we put flavoring in it, and it's not the case at all. It's just simply from the orange flowers, the orange blossoms. Um, now, here's, and that, here's the, thing that, that, here's the thing that always puzzles me, Laura. Have, have, when, 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 you're, when you're getting into the hive and you're taking, stealing the honey from the bees, why, <laughs> why don't they sting the heck out of you? Well, that's why you wear a bee suit when you do it. <laughs> um, and they also, you know, they, they have that smoke, the little smoker that they have with them. That yeah. calms the bees right. down, and it and it sort of makes them stay put and less less aggressive. But most beekeepers will wear uh, a bee suit when when they do it. You know, we um, when we were in London once, um, we stayed at this hotel that had a um, a number of hives on the on sort of like part of the roof, and and we we sort of inquired about it, and um, of course they used the honey in the in the restaurant. Um, mm-hmm. But we found out that there is um, a woman who we ended up interviewing who actually is a professional beekeeper, um, mm-hmm. and she she deals urban bees only. She does all of the the, the buildings in London with hives wow. on the roof. Yeah, huh. and she knows more about bees. I mean, I, I I just couldn't stop asking her questions about, you know, they do a dance and they communicate with movement and they... Do you know all that stuff? I'm learning it. Um, they're yeah, fascinating it's amazing. creatures, and so we're we, we're not Runamuck is not keeping bees, um, no. but we're dealing with the beekeepers because it, Vermont does not supply enough honey for, for our needs, um, right. which is why we we went across Lake Champlain to upstate New York for it. Um, but you know, maple syrup is extremely regional. I mean, it's got a wonderful history, but it's a you know about a 200-year history of maple syrup. Honey has been, you know, part of every single culture for centuries. And it's it's everywhere. It's worldwide. Like, every single culture has their own relationship to honey. So the mm-hmm. history of it is phenomenal. And you can, you can learn about Turkish honey and honey from Russia and honey from China right. and, and Africa. And, um, you know, so I feel like... I, I have a lot ahead of me to learn about honey, and in particular, I think I'm. I can't wait to learn how each of these cultures has been using it, and you know, it's 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 a part of you know religious festivals, and and it's this great prize, of course, because it was pure sugar, and it, yeah, often at times when there was none. So, honey is. I've just scratched the surface for honey. No, I, I want to. I want to pop in something into the conversation, but then, but then I don't want to give up. Give up the. Uh, the, the voice, because I have another question after that. But one of the things we discovered when we were at, staying at the, uh, the hotel in London that I mentioned is that the, the bees, that a lot, a lot of the bees that were being used actually came off the flowers in the gardens of Buckingham Palace. <laughs> That's were, fun. <laughs> so so they, were, they were supplied by Her Royal Majesty. Yeah, well, there you go. Some royal honey. <laughs> royal jelly, yeah, I mean, it's the same thing. Um, 
Go ahead, Robert. You had another question or comment. I forgot, I've forgotten what it was. <laughs> you forgot. <laughs> well, you know, you mentioned about other kinds of sweeteners. Oh, no, no I, now I remember. The, okay. The thing that amazed amazed us, I think, as we got as we talked to more and more people about about honey, is the place that bees have in the ecosystem, the agricultural ecosystem. Yes. And, yep. and they're such an important part of the creation of so many of the crops that we take for granted. Very important, and and they're very threatened at the moment. Um, you know, our 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 main beekeeper over in New York has said that he used to, you know, when he 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 brings a lot of his bees down to Florida and to California um, oh, yeah. during the winter yeah, months here. But he does keep some bees in in New York, and he said he used to get about 10% die off of his bees over the winter. I mean, you can always expect some sort of issues, and now it's more like 40%. And it's simply, oh, it's terrible. I mean, if it gets are, broader, are we're going to... Yeah, gonna, they're weaker, and there's less food for them and more pesticides out there, and they're just weaker in general. And um, it's pretty scary um, because we do rely on them for so many of our food crops. And and also, you know, even the non-food crops. Like, it's it's important for pollinating trees and, the you know... Oh, the, yes. The propagation the almond, of the everything. California is the largest almond producer in the world. And, mm-hmm. uh, and, and it's threatening that industry because bees are how they pollinate the, uh, yeah. the almond yeah. trees. Yeah. So a lot of beekeepers have become very politically active um, and, and environmentally active because their livelihoods are depending on it um, and, and trying to convince not only big agriculture, but even like small backyard growers to, to really think twice before using pesticides because it, it affects the bees. You know, bees, bees don't have borders. They go where they feel like going. And, um, you know, you can't keep them contained in your backyard. So when they head out, they're heading into everybody, everybody else's flowers. And, and uh, people just need to keep in mind that uh, you've got honeybees and, and, and even the non-honeybees are still important pollinators. Um, out there, and and they need to really calm down on all that pesticide there. Now, do you plan to be a producer yourselves, or are you saying no, no? We're no, probably no. not going to keep our own bees, um, but work with the with the families that we've started with. Now, talking, you talk about the history of honey, and uh, and all the different cultures involved. I mean, specifically maple syrup. I mean, mm-hmm. is that how recent is that discovery, and how widespread is it geographically? Well, colonists, when they when they came to um, this new land, um, were taught how to make maple syrup by indigenous peoples. So, you know, given that's uh, 300, 400 years, um, you you can date it back about that far. Um, how far back indigenous peoples were doing it, we're, we don't know. But um, it, you know, it's a very rich history in New England. Um, before yes. there was granulated sugar available up here, there was always maple syrup because, as I said, the colonists sort of learned from the indigenous people how to make it. And, you know, one of the interesting things about the grading system was um, for many years, the very light, um, light-flavored and first-of-the-season stuff was always the fancy stuff because they wanted it to be as close to 
granulated sugar as possible. They didn't want that maple flavor in it. They wanted it to taste like sugar from the Caribbean, which, of course, was very expensive and considered a luxury item. Now, of course, everybody loves, you know, the heavy maple flavor and it's uh, the darker syrups that people really want because they're looking for that that rich caramel flavor to it. They don't want it to be be light. Um, So they changed the whole grading system. It's gotten a little confusing. It's all grade A now and it's grade A light, grade A medium, grade A dark. Um, So anyway, things have switched around a little bit, but... um, the second part of your question is it's people sugar as far south as like roughly Virginia and as far west as um, Minnesota. It's oh, yeah. you just need you need to have sugar maples and you need to have the conditions of freezing and thawing in the winter or late late winter early spring, and you'll be able to make maple syrup. You may, it makes you wonder how anybody figured out that they could get this syrup. Well, it, it is interesting. I mean, if you go up to any maple tree and, you know, if the conditions are right and you scratch the the bark of it, you'll see the sap come out. And I think if really? you taste it, there's like a, it's it's 2%, 1 to 2% sugar. So if you actually tasted that sap, it would taste mildly sweet to you. So I think it's not much of a leap to, to think like, hey, I wonder if we like put a spile in there and actually, you know, tap this to get, some of this sap out and then boiled it down, boiled off the excess water if we would get a sweet syrup, and sure enough, you, you can. And, that, and that's what you do. So part, yes. part, of the, part of the process of being a sugar is that you concentrate the, the syrup? Yes. So I, I guess I didn't finish. So when, the, um, so when the sap comes into the sugar house, we first send it through an RO, a reverse osmosis machine. Um, and what that does is remove as much water as possible a lot of, you know, like RO machines are generally used to get fresh water. <laughs> we use it for, for the opposite. We're trying to get rid of the water and keep the concentrate that's left behind. Um, and so that concentrate, we can go from roughly 1% to 2% sugar on the way up to 16. That's as high as we can get. And then it's a much more efficient process of boiling uh, the sap down to syrup. So it goes into the evaporator. It's boiled down to syrup. Uh, we filter it, and then it goes into large barrels. So for us, once they're in the barrels, they, we have a plant over in Fairfax where um, we do all of the barrel aging, infusing, bottling, and et cetera, et cetera. So that all happens at the plant in Fairfax. But the sugaring happens here at our sugar bush in, in Cambridge. Oh, wow. Well, I, I think it's amazing. There was a time when um, people just thought what they bought and supermarkets as maple syrup was maple syrup, and and I think I became conscious of it when I needed a a, a present for one of um, out of our son's um, buddies, and mm-hmm. uh, the, the 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 father suggested a nice jar or bottle of of, of honest to god maple syrup, and that's when I first became aware of of the difference in in quality. Of the mm-hmm. kind of stuff you, this, but now people understand that, that it's a different animal altogether. That the fine I, I hope pure so. maple syrup. I, yeah, I, I, thought, I, hope I so. thought bees I mean, were insects, and trees, trees, trees are vegetables. <laughs> exactly. Now, well, there are two. Let's, it's let's interesting because they're both wild crafted uh, sources of of sweeteners. I mean, they're. You know, it, uh, to get maple syrup, you go off into a wild forest. Like you're not, you're not. Most of agriculture is, 
is in a clear-cut, enormous field and neat, tidy rows where it's easy to harvest. And that is definitely not the case for maple. You're you're trugging up the mountain in three feet of snow with 20 pounds on your back um, <laughs> to get it. And, you know, and it's also true for, for bees. Like, you, you have these hives, but you're dealing with a wild animal and you're dealing with with the elements and how different every, every season is. And, um, you know, it's, it's, they're both sort of in their own right, wild crafted foods, um, which Uh we think is sort of neat. Yeah, I do too. I'll I'll, I'll think of you with, with 36 pounds on your back. Is that, is that that poor maple syrup or honey onto my granola in the morning? Exactly. That was hard one, maple syrup. Well, we we have, um, one thing left to do here, but before I move to how you get it uh, and your website and stuff, uh, tell me the name is what? I mean, uh, how did you get the name? Uh, Runamuck. Oh, Runamuck? Well, <laughs> our name is based on the fact that our business relies on the weather, and that is just always a bad idea. And so there's always just a wee bit of chaos going on here. I mean, as I just said, you know, maple syrup is 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 produced from a forest and we are subject to blizzards and windstorms and moose and squirrels and you know all all, all manner of of uh wild and and non-wild you know things breaking in in the sugar house and and um so we're just always kind of running amok around here okay (laughs) well i wanted to get that out and um, yeah, and, and do squirrels have a sweet tooth? Do they like the syrup? Oh yeah, no, and they oh, they are very mischievous, and they will go and they'll chew up the tubing. They're horrible. I can't stand them. They they get. We have an Asian pear tree, and I see these little rats running around with with the pears in their mouth. <laughs> they climb up anything, you know. Yeah. So, but yep, they do. okay. How about now? Can you order from your website? Where? How do people get your your products so it's all available at runamuckmaple.com um and we have uh and that's spelled r-u-r-u-n-a-m-o-k maple.com dot com um and we've got recipes and and a blog about how maple syrup is made and all sorts of information and and also we're we are on facebook and instagram and twitter uh so definitely look us up on there and and like us and uh because we <laughs> we have new content every day and we try especially during the sugaring season it's a lot of fun to follow along because we try and get as much um footage from from the woods and what people are oh, up wow. there and, and stuff. So it's really fun to follow along during any time between January and April. Well, Laura, thank you. It's been a delight to sample your products and to find out more about your business and, and uh, yeah, and talk to you about it. It's great. My pleasure. Well, continued it was success. lovely talking to you. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for having me. Well, we're big fans. That does it for us today. Um, our last segment is kaput. <laughs> um, so join us again next week, same time, same station, same channel. And until then, bye-bye.